Welcome to Breaking Free. I'm Rania Kurdi, a transformational life coach, comedian, and mother of two. And you can join me weekly to hear some intimate self-reflections and conversations with inspirational friends and guests from all around the world, sharing what they needed to break free from in order to live a life of purpose. I'm here this episode with Hala Sabah, the founder of The Healthy Feminist, which is a social business working to dismantle the patriarchy and other systems of oppression. And I'll be finding out how Hala managed to balance her community work while attaining financial stability in a social business environment. Hi, Hala. So lovely to have you here. Hi, Rania. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Hala, you've had an extensive experience in coaching women, running healing circles and working with refugee communities in Southwest Asia and North Africa, abbreviated as SWANA from now on, because that's quite a mouthful. And you're currently running a diversity, equity and inclusion training with over 2000 employees in Arabic. How did all of this start for you? Actually, my background was in finance. Um and consulting. I was a consultant in IBM for around four years in Dubai. Um, And then when I decided to move to London, I took some time off. I took around a year off. And at that time, I was healing from endometriosis and polycystic ovaries, which are both really challenging uterus Uh, illnesses that don't have a cure Mm. so I decided to take that year off and in that time I did a course in holistic health and what I had in mind at the time was to do this for myself um, as a learning experience to learn about my body what diet what works for me and how I can lead a healthier lifestyle without having to depend a lot on medication. Mm -hmm. And in that journey, I realized that I was really passionate about women's health, raising awareness about women's health. And I also saw an opportunity in the Arabic speaking world for this kind of content and this kind of work. So I decided to launch Healthy Feminist and the idea behind launching this business was to start coaching women um, on uterus issues, women's health in general, but it was also heavily connected to mental health. Um, So holistic in the sense that it connects the physical and the emotional health together. And over time that changed or, or developed, I would say. So beyond my mental health workshops and coaching, I started also to do workshops on intersectionality, on anti-racism. And I also did a campaign on anti-blackness awareness in uh, Swana. Mm -hmm. So that kind of grew. And then eventually I got this six-month project with a large NGO Um, It's an NGO from the United States, but they have quite a large presence in Swana. And I started doing this project a few months ago. And yeah, that's how I got here. (laughs) It's kind of strange to hear that there's a need for an anti-blackness awareness campaign in Swana when the majority of people are uh, dark-skinned 
And, you know, you wouldn't think that there would be racism there. Of course, I've lived in the Middle East, so I know that there is. But I'd love you to explain more about that. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, first of all, I think the set of challenges that black people face in Swana is quite different from North America and the US uh, specifically. So the Black Lives Matter um, movement looks very different in the US than it does in Europe, than it does in Swana. And I think with um, Swana, as you mentioned, uh, the majority of people are brown, but we also have a lot of black people um, in Sudan, Somalia, Egypt, Algeria, Morocco, but not just in North Africa. We also have black people in Palestine, in Lebanon, a big black community in Iraq. So I think the challenges that we face in those regions are not spoken about enough. Mm. The portrayal of black people in Arabic media is very problematic. An example would be constantly having black people as the servers or the butlers, um, also portraying people from Sudan as lazy. So these kind of stereotypes have an impact, not just from a media perspective, but also have an impact on hiring black people into um, organizations in Swana. Um, there are a lot of backhanded, state, uh, backhanded compliments. There are a lot of state problematic statements that are made Common things that I've heard during this campaign was were statements like, you are beautiful even though you are black. At uh, certain terminologies, oh, you, you are, your skin is like chocolate. Uh, statements like this that are really problematic and really make black people feel uncomfortable. Mm, and there isn't even a realization or awareness that that is being racist. Exactly, exactly. Like mm. even certain terminologies, right? Like using uh, abid or zol um, or the N-word in Arabic um, that I won't say. There's even um, desserts or, sh or sweets that have those names. There are even creams that whiten you. Exactly, um, exactly. So it's pretty much there everywhere without even realizing yeah and you know even um in my family we don't have any black people in my family but i would always have my grandmother telling me don't tan too much you look too dark or straighten your hair um it's it's too curly as if curls or dark skin are anti-beauty, right? Mm. And of course, this comes from the beauty standards that are set through colonization of being light skin, uh, blonde, light, uh, light eyes or green eyes or blue eyes. Um, so I think sadly, in our region, we still struggle a lot with internal colonization and holding on to these beauty standards that have been imposed on us and internalizing them. And this has a huge impact um, on the Black community, not just from criticizing the way they look, but it affects their 
jobs, it affects their everyday life, it affects their mental health. Um, so I think there needs to be more awareness about this and we need to continue, continuously localize and contextualize the conversation because it's not the same issues or challenges that, have it, that happen in the United States where it's more about police brutality and the history of slavery. Um, it's a very different context. We mm. also had slavery, but it looked very different from how it looked in the United States. Yes. I think what helps in, in um, the Islamic religion that there were slaves that were treated well or freed or given um, high positions that perhaps we don't have brutality as such, but we have that they're less than um, and not realising, you know, those who have privileges really have different opportunities and how much people of colour are still struggling in the Middle East or the Arab world. Yeah, I do think religion plays a positive role in this because we do have the Bilal Yes. who has a beautiful voice and everyone talks about his stories and how freeing or eradicating slavery is part of uh, Islam. Um, yeah, unfortunately, slavery is not eradicated, uh, even in 2021 in Swana. And Mauritania and Libya have significant amounts of enslaved people. I think Mauritania has the highest rate in the world. And in Lib Libya, there's a lot of brutality against people. So I think even though historically with Islam, we had a positive impact on eradicating it, we haven't fully succeeded. And it's still an issue that we need to talk about. I mean, even with help in the house, a lot of the ladies are Ethiopian, or the men are from Egypt, and they're very, very mistreated. For sure, for sure. I mean, migrant workers from the global south struggle immensely in the region. Um, mm. I have read an article where the countries where this is an issue, or a huge issue, is Kuwait and Lebanon. And I do think that there needs to be more policies in place, more trainings, and awareness for these women on their rights yes. regarding these topics. It's something that we really need to push for. And we saw during COVID or coronavirus pandemic that this vulnerable community was the one that was hit the most because people mm. won't have money to pay their salaries. So they just threw them out on the streets. And we saw terrible images of that during the pandemic in Lebanon, where these ladies were thrown out on the streets during a pandemic and didn't even have the money to purchase a ticket to go back home. So yes, it, it is a huge mm. issue and anti-blackness is very, very relevant and very strong in different forms in our region mm. today. Myself, like as a creative and empath, I try to change the conversation through um, social comedy and humour or talking to a diverse group of people with different life experiences on this podcast and um, change uh, will help to change mindsets 
that hinder us through coaching and through deep connection. So I'm so interested in hearing about the different ways to heal through dialogue, which is your tagline uh, for the healthy feminist, with the work that you do. I mean, how do you foster a just society where everyone receives various and equitable opportunities, Hella? How? How is that even put into action? I think if we continue on the anti-blackness conversation, when I created this campaign and I had panels and Instagram lives with certain people, there was a little bit of a shock that there was a space for this. And that shock really really resonated with me and made me feel how needed these kind of conversations are in our societies. Mm. So when I use the tagline healing through dialogue, I think, yes, we have a lot of challenges um, and I'm going to continue to talk about Swana specific for now, but we have a lot of challenges regarding race, regarding gender, regarding um, LGBTQ, regarding um, disability. And if we don't start the dialogue, then we we will not we will not reach equity. We will not reach equitable societies, right? So for me, the Mm. first step is having these conversations, listening to each other, actively listening to each other. And I believe that that slowly leads to healing. Definitely. I mean, we don't even have the language in the Arabic language to talk about gender equality or gender identity, um, sexuality, It's either very uh, formal, technical, scientific, or it's very sort of street lingo. Like the language doesn't even allow you to have those conversations. So a lot of vocabulary is having to be created now so that we can have those conversations and people can understand more about pronouns, about all sorts of things. Yes, and I think in this conversation, I am constantly aware of not importing whatever movements or quote-unquote trends that are happening in Western countries and just bringing them and applying them to our region. So we do have a very rich language and I think there are amazing, amazing individuals, but also our civil society in the region is growing and it's getting stronger and they are creating the language They are creating um, dictionaries and terminologies regarding gender, regarding queerness, regarding all these topics that we're talking about. Um, And coming back to this project that I'm working on right now, where I'm doing trainings in Arabic, I have myself engrossed myself into that world and learned the vast terminologies we have. And... When I did the training, I found that people already knew these terminologies and they were curious about what I was saying. And there was a lot of absorption and hunger for these kind of conversations regarding these topics. And um, equity means, you know, having programs that are impartial with equal possible outcomes. How how do you create that? How do you create those sort of programs? I think equity is less about being impartial and more about taking into consideration the barriers 
that everyone faces. So for example, I will provide a very simple example in the workplace. Women should have more leave days for menopause, for fertility um, issues, for uh, period pain, especially for me as someone who suffered from both endometriosis and polycystic ovaries, it took me years to figure out a way to be functional most of the time and to be able to manage my workload. But in that process, I was working full time and it was very difficult for me to explain to my employer that I need a bit more time off or a little bit more flexibility to work from home because I have these health challenges. Mm. So when we talk about equity, it's, going, it's about giving people more flexibility, more tools, more resources, more trainings, more access than everyone else because they need it. Yeah, it's, I think it's looking at people as humans, humans who have things to deal with other than work that will affect you know, them having that balance in their life and, and looking at it for males and females at all the different possible things that they would need that kind of space given. Yes, for sure. It's definitely mm. looking at people from a more humane perspective, but less from an equal perspective. I think mm. in, in the world of DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion, we constantly have the conversation of e equity versus equality. And equity is what we need, right? Mm -hmm. Equality means everyone is equal. They get the same opportunities, the same access to everything. But we are not all equal in this world. A person with an invisible disability, a black woman, a, a gay person, we do not have the same opportunities. Even if an organization says, oh, we have equality and we provide you all with the same opportunities. But these people are not equal. And that's where equity comes in. Because mm, equity says, that. you face more challenges, therefore we're going to give you a little bit more support. Yes. And I love that even at the bottom of your emails, Hala, there is so much attention and care to the wellness of people's mental health. Um, if you don't mind me quoting it, it's it's so beautiful. I felt like it's the sort of thing you would want your partner to say, your friend or your parent, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I have exactly. never read that at the bottom of any email. It says, please know that I honour and respect boundaries around personal time, well-being, caretaking and rest. Should you receive correspondence from me during a time that you're engaging in any of the above of the above, please protect your time and wait to respond until you're next working or in front of your computer. And this is the best part. Prioritize joy, not email, when and where you can. I mean, that is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, thank you. And I think mental health isn't the root of everything I'm talking about, right? Like when I talk about equity, when I talk about anti-blackness, when I talk about all the work that I'm doing, mental health is always in the center of it because anti-blackness leads to poor mental health. Uh, poor equity or lack of equity leads to poor mental health. So I think this is something that I remind myself, and this is actually where the name healthy feminist comes from. For me, health is not in the ableist form of 
you know, you're healthy, there's nothing wrong with you, but it's mm -hmm. about constantly pursuing a balance between your mental health and your purpose in life. Mm. Yeah. And I said at the beginning of the episode that we'll be finding out how you manage to balance your community work because I mean you're doing a hell of a lot while attaining financial stability and a social business environment and you know the whole balance in your life and being healthy yourself. It has been a challenge <laughs> for sure. Um, I think when I first founded the business um, my partner was working full-time and we had some savings so it made sense but shortly after I started my business the pandemic started and the first place where a lot of organizations slash their budgets tends to be DEI so I really struggled in the year in the pandemic year and my health deteriorated um, I did the anti-blackness awareness campaign I did a lot of healing circles, community workshops, but I did them on my own pace because I had the luxury of doing that. But eventually, mm. I started to, to get cornered and needed to make an income, a more sustainable income that still aligns with the purpose of my organization, that still aligns with my work and my belief system. And that is when I decided to shift more into DEI consulting because my background is in corporate consulting. And then I did a master's in international relations. And eventually I did a lot of work in mental, in mental health, um, women's health, coaching. And I felt like DEI kind of marries all three together, mm -hmm. brings in all my expertise together and provides me with spaces in corporations, in development, in public sector, to go into these spaces and use the healing through dialogue mantra in a healthy way. But it's definitely been a challenge. I mean, I just started after two years to get projects, significant large projects, and it hasn't been an easy journey, that's for sure. And do you have enough time for yourself? Do you make that time for yourself? You know, is it is it a priority to remember your own mental health um, or do you kind of get drawn in helping others and, and, you know, overworking yourself and kind of forget? Because I think that's a problem of a lot of coaches is putting themselves For sure. first. For sure. Um, no, I definitely work a lot on my boundaries with my emotions. Mm. I am a highly empathetic person. And if I allow myself to get drawn into every emotion or every frustration that anyone feels, then I will be drained and exhausted at all times. Um, I was actually reading an article um, recently that talks about creating an invisible shield. Mm -hmm. So I create this invisible shield and I go through my day and a lot of my work, whether it's with DEI, whether it's with community work, whether it's on one-on-one -on -one coaching, involves discomfort and this involves egos and feelings and emotions. So I make sure that within my working hours, I shield myself. 
I give myself time to process the feelings and then let go of them. But in my, on my weekends and after my working hours, I really work hard on disconnecting. And this is, this is something I do in therapy. I do therapy every single week because I deal with a lot of different difficult scenarios and I work with a lot of vulnerable communities. So I need to make sure that I maintain my mental health, I maintain my energy, because if that is jeopardized, then I'm jeopardizing the people I'm working with. And that's something that, are, as you said, a lot of people in the coaching field or even in the DEI field need to be very aware of, not to get burnt out through your activism and your work, not to get too involved or not to allow your emotions to get heavy in every conversation, because that's definitely not sustainable. Yeah. I mean, personally, I felt I couldn't be of help to many people because I was so sensitive and couldn't bear to see um, marginalised societies, um, occupation and apartheid and domestic violence and, you know, all these awful things that we see a lot as well in our part of the world and in the Arab world that would affect me and put me sort of in a in a freeze mode. Um, and so my only way of coping was to not watch the news, to not be aware of these happening, these things happening. But then there's a guilt that comes with that, that you're kind of turning a blind eye instead of helping. And it was only through getting the therapy and healing myself and learning how to make those boundaries and also having an invisible shield. I totally understand that I'm able now to be a voice more for much more, you know, more people and help more people. So I think it's important to work on ourselves, help ourselves in order to help others. And sometimes it can be seen as selfish um, to do that, where in fact it's, where in, you know, in fact it's completely the opposite. Exactly. And news are designed to evoke these emotions. Mm. So if you are constantly watching the news, then you will constantly feel drained and exhausted and helpless. I think from my coaching experience, when we talk about this specific topic, I go back to your purpose in life, right? Our purpose in life cannot be to eradicate poverty, um, eliminate uh, slavery, uh, achieve gender equality. <laughs> like you cannot do all of that, right? Yeah. So think about what you are really, really, really passionate about. How are you integrating it into your job, into your daily life, into your side hustle, into your hobby? And just focus on that. And for me, that really helped me to create those boundaries. Just like you said, I. I stopped watching the news on a daily basis. I'm very, very particular about where I receive the news from. Um, I am much more into slow journalism now, so I read in-depth articles every once in a while. But also, aside from that, it's we are human beings, and in every phase of life, our capacity is different. So for me, for example, when I went through the past year where my health deteriorated, we went through a very intense lockdown here in the UK for several months. I was extremely disconnected from everyone I love. And my business was 
sort of on hold. Mm -hmm. My cup was full. Yeah. My cup was extremely full. So for me to want to give at that time, give to, to communities, to give to uh, marginalized people, give to my people, give to the Palestinian cause, it would have caused more harm than good. I would have been very anxious. I would have been very agitated. So instead, I chose the route of rest. And I told myself, even though there's a lot going on in the world, you going in in your current state is not going to change that. Yes. And that's why I feel when we are in a good current state, when we are feeling energized and positive and healed and able to help, it is so important to help people who are in a position where they can't help because their cup is full. Because once you relieve them, then they are members of society that can can be effective and can help. But without that, you know, they can't. So we're losing exactly. out on such a huge amount of people and society that could be helpful to one another. Exactly. And I love that, that we're sitting here trying to understand how to create more space in each other's cups. And the more we do that, the more capacity we have, the better care we take care of our mental health, then that will help us all to have the energy, the capacity to to create change, to dismantle these systems that are, are oppressing us and oppressing so many people around us. But I do want to just add a small disclaimer here that caring for your mental health is a privilege and a luxury. And I'm not talking about it as if it's accessible to all people in the same ways that it is accessible to me. Um, so that's also an important thing to recognize. True. Yeah, that's very true. Um, another thing that coaches struggle with and, um, and therapists and counselors who who want to help others and give, 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 is they don't have the entrepreneurial skills. So it kind of stops there and they they reach burnout. You know, they want to give, but they don't know how to be an entrepreneur about it. And I just um, attended a wonderful workshop by Mastin Kip, who explains that so wonderfully that, you know, we are great students. We want to learn a lot. We're great practitioners we've got the patience and we want to hear and support others. But when it comes to entrepreneurship, we're not wired for that. However, having a conversation with you prior to this, you told me that your family, the whole family are entrepreneurs and risk takers, and you've had a past in corporate. So how did that help you then feel like, okay, I've learned these things. It's helped me. I'm going to start it as a business. Yeah, it's helped a lot, actually. <laughs> um, I think for me, my corporate experience, um, the four years that I've spent in IBM have taught me a lot because as a consultant, you rotate from industry to industry. So you can be on a project from three to four weeks up to six months. So I worked in healthcare, in public sector, in retail, and that experience rotating between different places and suddenly being thrown into a place where you know nothing about and you have to learn and not only learn, but provide recommendations and feedback for the client. I think that experience taught me a lot in terms of organizational skills, in terms of management, in terms of 
dealing with people. And when, I came, when it came for me to set up my business, a lot of these skills were very transferable. Taking things mm. that I learned from the corporate world and applying them into a social business, into a feminist business was gr- great. Um, and as you mentioned, my family is quite entrepreneurial. My dad has been an entrepreneur um, for 10 plus years now. And I have seen him grow. I have seen him fail. And that kind of environment has taught me that having your own thing or doing something that you really believe in and that you really, really want is achievable. It's not impossible. Mm. And also my mom has her own business, uh, side business. um, And my brother has an extremely fast growing um, fintech uh, startup. So seeing all of them going through the struggle with me has been definitely very inspiring. And um, there's definitely a feeling of solidarity that we all have together. That is inspiring. And thank you for inspiring us today, Hala. I wish you all the best. And um, if somebody does want to reach out to you, what sort of things are you offering? How can they find you? I mean, in the notes, we will have your, your social media accounts and your website. But generally, what sort of things could they expect? Right now, um, I am providing coaching services. So one-on-one coaching services, um, to talk about mental health, uh, life challenges, um, barriers that people are struggling with in their careers, in their personal life, or in their relationships. And this is a service that I provide, but I also provide coaching in DEI, uh, in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So if you are a manager who works in a corporation or in development, and you have a lot of power but you are not sure how to navigate some of these conversations or certain situations, then this is something I can definitely help with. And on a more macro level, I work with corporations and uh, public sector and NGOs on coming in, assessing the DEI situation, providing trainings in English or Arabic. Um, So these are the kind of services I provide. And I must say I have an incredible group of people who I work with, um, consultants who I freelance and I scale up and down according to the project I'm working on. So Healthy Feminist is not a one woman business. It's actually a a great community of people Mm -hmm. um, that support me and have been with me on different journeys. And they are also truly inspiring people. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Hala. Thank you, Rania. It's been a pleasure and I was really happy to do this with you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Free, please share it with your friends or on your social media platforms. And of course, I'd really love it if you can subscribe, rate or review the show. You can reach me directly at raniacurdy.com if you would like to ask a question, comment on what you heard today or find out how I can support you on your journey.